0: Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland.
1: And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the
0: United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture.
1: And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self.
0: This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hey, Sasha. How's it going? It's going well. How are you doing today? I'm good. Feeling the pressure of of Denver on its way. And we've been just finishing off the gender care framework, which was a phenomenal level of work, a phenomenal level of work. But it's very exciting. You know, last
1: time we talked about the gender care framework, I remember you said this is a really ambitious project because it's an all encompassing (laughs) document to try and help societies and schools uh. and parents and therapists and everybody think about gender a little bit differently yeah, so it's yeah. huge
0: yeah it is huge it's huge it's a concept rather than anything else because the, the whole point of it is we're just offering a non-medical medicalized view so it's not guidelines it's not standard of care it's not guidance it's not clinical what this is a framework for people in the larger sense in society and culture to see how you could have gender diversity within society without medicalizing. It's kind of Mm -hmm. like, okay, if the uh, if the um, you know, if some group want to medicalize identities, that's fine. They're perfectly free to and that's how they're going to go with, you know, evidence base and with standards of care, with clinical guidelines that they're perfectly entitled to. We're going a completely different way in and We're saying, how about offering a non medicalized a view of a non medicalized view of... Uh, of uh, gender diversity and it's hard it's almost like up the road is the psychiatrist talking about antidepressants and anti-anxiety and the different dosages and how they should handle it and the psychotherapists are down the road saying well how about you bring some poetry into your life and you deepen your relationships and you talk mm-hmm. about um getting out into nature and maybe you join a choir so it's a completely different view and it's not negating the fact that there's people up the road talking about medicalizing it's just that's not our bag we're going to focus now on the non medicalized identity. So it's massively, it's definitely conceptual. And um, yeah, it's exciting. It's a preliminary version that will be released in Denver. And then uh, we hopefully get, you know, inspire all the great thinkers. We've got some brilliant thinkers already Colin Wright did an amazing uh, contribution, Christina Buttons did something really, mm-hmm. really brilliant, mm-hmm. um, uh, Holly Lawford Smith. She did an amazing uh, contribution. Uh, Too many to mention. I'm sure I'm going to offend everybody, but not mentioning them. Stephen Levine, (laughs) Joe Burgo and stuff. But yeah, it's it's really good, but massively ambitious and exhausting. I'm (laughs) I'm so glad to be at the end of that one.
1: And the conference hasn't even happened yet as of this recording, but you're already so, so tired. Well, it is prep work that is... I'm
0: haggard. I'm haggard and I'm wasted. So anyway... You don't look haggard and wasted. Oh, Sasha. You don't. You you look like the fragrant flower that you always are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, uh, today uh, there is construction going on, so I'll just give our, our listeners a heads up. You may or may not hear some noises, but I think right now it's pretty quiet. So we should be good to go.
0: Um, How's life been for you?
1: Life has been good. Um, I, I was traveling for about a month from the Annapolis retreat to going to help my, my mom with some health stuff to uh, the SEGUM conference in New York back home. So I I've been on the road for quite a while. I just got back. Um, And actually I have a funny story. It's not funny. It's quite sad, but it's turning out okay. I lost my computer in the Newark airport. Oh yeah, you messaged
0: me. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. I I think I'd go mental. How did you lose it?
1: Well, I was working at a cafe and the the table was kind of like this brushed aluminum silver color and my computer is silver. This is the story I'm telling myself, okay? And (laughs) I had my carry-on luggage and I had my bag and I had like my phone plugged in charging and my computer was charging and I had all this stuff And I realized kind of haphazardly that my flight was boarding and I didn't realize it was boarding. So I go, oh, no, I better, you know, so I told myself in my head, I better not forget anything. So I said, do I have my cell phone? Check. Do I have my phone charger? Check. Do I have my computer charger? So all my chargers were like wrapped up (laughs) nicely and put in the bag. And I left my dang computer sitting there on the desk and I didn't realize it. So I get on the plane. And the flight attendant comes up to me and he goes, "Are you Miss Ayad?" and I said, "Yes." And he goes, "Are you missing a laptop?"
0: Oh my god. And we god. were
1: still like parked at the gate and my heart flutters. I open my computer bag. It's heavy as hell because of all the crap in there, but there's no computer. <laughs> so I said, "Oh my god. Oh my god. I am missing my computer. What do I do?" And he's like, "I'm sorry, ma'am. We're taxiing. We cannot We cannot stop and get it. We cannot let you off, but it'll be safe in the Newark airport for you. And I said,
0: which you're flying away from. Exactly. And I said, (laughs) can I just get off the plane? Like, can I just leave? And he said, no, do you have bags? You should have done like, you should have done like Rachel and friends. There's a problem with the phalange.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think of it. (laughs) So anyway, long story short, Everybody around me on the plane was very sympathetic and they were like, oh, don't worry with their New Jersey accent. Oh, don't worry. You'll get your computer back by tomorrow. Like, it'll be fine. And I was like, "Okay, well, we'll see. Four days into it, I get back. The the computer has not been located in the like computer reporting system. And so I was freaking out. But yesterday they emailed me. They matched my lost report with the item, and it is now being FedExed back to me. So I am using my fiance's computer. It's not as nice as my computer, which I miss very much, but all is well, and I will survive. And I've still been very productive in the last few days.
0: Wow. (laughs) So I,
1: I wanted to let everybody know that I am moving from MailChimp to Substack. I currently okay. have a newsletter where I talk about, you know, something that was interesting that caught my eye and I relate it back to gender as you and I have a habit of doing, <laughs> we relate everything back to gender, but I actually am starting a Substack and Whoa. I'm very excited about it. And I think by the time this episode comes out, it would have been transferred over. So it's going to be SashaAyad.substack.com, And I'm calling it gender therapy session notes with Sasha Ayad. Nice. So I'm very excited about it. It'll have like wow. different sections where I summarize what I've been up to that month. It's going to be a monthly newsletter. You know, I'm going to talk about conferences that I attend. I'll talk about stuff happening in my parent membership group. I'll update people about what we covered on our podcast. And I'll talk about, um, you know, what I'm listening to, what I'm reading, what I'm watching on Netflix. And I'll kind of offer parents, like, what's one simple thing you can try this month with your kid? And it'll be really boiled down and simple. It's not going to be like, you know a 300 page you know essay or book it's just like one easy thing you can do so we'll see how it goes i'm really excited about it good for you we'll be we'll be substack <sighs> sisters huh Yes, because you've been on Substack for a while. Do you yeah. like it?
0: Do you like the format? I love it. I was very resistant. It was, I think it was Graeme Linehan who used to say to me, God, you should go on Substack. It's its lovely. And I was like, oh, I've heard that so much. You know, check out this new platform. It's so I good. Like, Get away from me. But actually, it's a really lovely, easy, intuitive platform. Yeah. And I find some of them are really counterintuitive where you. It just doesn't make sense. And this one, I have to say, I love it. I think Substack is really, I think it's actually where it's at. I think it's the new media. I really do. Yeah, and it's visually
1: appealing. It's like nice to look
0: at. It's not
1: too distracting. Yeah, I really like it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so should we jump in today? Okay, I think it's going to be an interesting episode.
0: Well, I always think that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's
1: what we're doing here. We
0: think this is all interesting. <laughs> we,
1: we wanted to talk about, the idea started as kind of like myths, myths about yeah. gender. And as we discussed it, we recognized that what we're really trying to do is highlight points that get overblown and get used as kind of rhetorical strategies by different sides of the debate to try and make a point. But by overblowing these these ideas, people lose a lot of nuance and complexity. So we're going to be talking about kind of like myths or misunderstood or overblown points from all sides of the
0: gender debates. I think it's really important that we're addressing it because there are myths. We, we, we all know there are myths. And then there is probably more exaggerations and kind of blanket statements, black and white blanket statements on every single side of the debate. And um no, they're not quite true. So the amount of time somebody says something and you're kind of you kinda of go, well that uh, and then they run on and they say something else. And there's often a truth there. But the actual statement doesn't cover it. It's 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 a it's a blanket statement. It's kind of a lot of sledgehammer facts. Maybe it's because of the world we're in, because of social media, or maybe it's just a reflection on this is such a complex issue. To actually say what's actually going on on every single point requires a few boring sentences rather than sound bites. It gender doesn't work with sound bites. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It just if you think it's simple, you've missed it. Yeah, for sure.
1: And yeah. I know you you were talking about how when you give presentations, I'm imagining for schools or health, you know, mental health clinics, you often start with a couple of big yeah. myths. I mean, these, I would say, are definitely myths yeah. that are um, used to kind of convince people to just literally affirm a child's identity. So do, do we want to start with those kind of big myths from the gender ideology side? Yeah.
0: I find, like, I gave two talks this week to schools and I did start with the myth. And every time you can see them kind of, you can see the faces because it's generally teachers often I talk to in schools. It's the staff I talk to. And you can see them thinking, oh, is this not true? You can see, it gets them. You know what I mean? And the big one, one big one anyway, I often start with is trans is not the new gay. You know what I mean? And you and I have done this and we've talked about it. But it is unbelievable how many people just presume that it's a it, it's it's not that they think it's the same as being gay but they think it's the developmentally the same as being gay that it's something that just kind of uh evolves within somebody they often haven't thought about it very deeply and they think there's just some sort of thing that's called trans somewhere in them and you have to help them out because they've been unfortunately chosen ones with this very difficult condition that has been bestowed upon them somewhere between being uh, a fetus in their in their mother's stomach and being born that there's something trans in them and so that's a big one
1: yeah and this this kind of relates to the idea that trans is this fixed innate property of a person and that it's through the the let's say the course of discovery or self-reflection or sometimes maybe it's very obvious that that a person is going to quote discover this about themselves and that it's the job of people around them to just facilitate that kind of unfolding the kind of butterfly coming out of the cocoon situation
0: Uh, this really reminds me of, of some parents that i've worked with and i remember one parent saying to me um you know I I, I fought against it I I really didn't want him to be trans I I really it was I just felt it was such a difficult road for him such a difficult life I resisted it I resisted it so much but honestly I just have to come round to the fact that he is trans and I need to just uh, support that and at the time I was just like all sorts of things were going off my head because I was like that wouldn't be the way I would look at something, you know what I mean? And she was so sure of it. And it reminded me of another mother I knew in a completely different context who was basically talking about her very, very shy child. And she had the very same, and it's it's when you get into psychology jargon, Bear with me here because I'm going off piece for a sec. But when you get into psychology, you realise some people have an internal locus of control and some people have an external locus of control. If you have an internal locus of control, you feel that you're in charge of your, your life and your destiny. And so you can make a difference to whatever's going on. If it's an external, the government, God, nature, your partner is in charge of your life. So it's a very external locus of control to think trans is on him. And the mother, the other mother I was talking to thought... She thought her child was very, very shy and she she didn't think, therefore, I should help the child by helping her socialise, by helping her maybe gradually mix with children. No, no, no. She had a completely different view, which was she's incredibly shy, so she can't go to school. So she's going to have to homeschool and it's I don't want it. I don't really like it at all, but I'm going to have to support her because she's just so, so shy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, but I I wouldn't see it like that because I'd have a completely different view of yeah. that. And I know shy is nothing like trans, but it's this feeling of mm-hmm. these traits are in us. And you, mm-hmm. you as a parent is either your job to work with the child and help them or to accept that these difficult traits are within your child. It's a completely different view of parenting.
1: That's really interesting because I went down a rabbit hole a couple of weeks back uh, about like whether or not parent involvement makes a difference in the life of a child. And I was watching all these debates between the people who kind of say that our personalities are largely genetic and parental influence doesn't really do much. And then, of course, on the other side of that, the attachment theory people that say what your parents do with you as a child makes huge difference. And I thought it was really interesting because I've always kind of leaned towards the attachment theory side of it. And I also recognize though, and, and any parent with multiple children knows this, we do each come into the world with our own dispositions. Yeah. So I, I think that's very interesting about the lady with the shy child that, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge and recognize that my child's natural disposition is shy But what, what else is going on that I could maybe support her or like encourage her or teach her to, you know, do a little more, you know, in terms of socializing or help her with her confidence, because, you know, it's not a pathology to be shy, but there are probably ways that being overly shy is going to have a negative impact on her child's life. So it's interesting, like the difference between, well, there's absolutely nothing you can do. So just, just let it be versus I can completely reach this for yeah. my child. I mean, those are different things, but it's, it's I, I err
0: on the other side. I err on the <laughs> let me at it. <laughs> I have so much to do, so much impact on it. And either side in the extreme, and I, I, I'd I, be uh, embarrassed about saying it, but either side is slightly wrong. You know what I mean? You, can, you yeah. have some, you have some shaping on your kid.
1: Yeah. And I think this actually ties into kind of another myth or let's say like overblown point which is that gender identity trumps biological reality meaning whatever is in a person's mind should override their physical biological reality which is again this kind of nature versus nurture type of question like if you have the propensity for let's say some sort of transgender gender identity that that must supersede in all contexts your biological sex
0: and with that comes very, very close beside it is, and there is no pain on earth like gender dysphoria. And if you haven't experienced it, you have no idea. You have no idea because there is actually no pain on earth like it. And I, 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 I having had it, having had gender dysphoria, certainly what would be now called it, I'm like, there's so many ways for the human to be in such pain. There is so many like the pain of the of the alcoholic, the pain of the anorexic, the pain of people with extreme uh, challenges. It's 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 not really comparable. And we don't know. I don't know how you suffer pain. I don't mm. know how com- how I know I definitely am an extremist, but I don't know how I suffer pain compared to anybody else. No, yeah. no more than yeah. I know how you see red versus I see red. Right. We, we don't we don't have any comparison But this idea of it's innate and there's no pain like it, they're very closely tied Mm -hmm. and neither Mm -hmm. of them are true.
1: Yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to the fact that we can never really understand another person's experience fully. We can try to empathize. We can listen carefully. We can try to imagine. But nobody knows what it's like to live somebody else's reality. And I think you can acknowledge that. Like I never had the exact type of gender dysphoria that Stella O'Malley had. yeah. yeah. But I've had some issues around gender and sex, as we all have. And I can try and hear your experience and and imagine what that's like. But none of us can know. Even you take 10 different people with gender dysphoria and there are going to be lots of areas of overlap, but there will also be lots of areas that are quite different. So I, I agree that this idea that that we can't understand people's experiences if they have different experiences from us or that we shouldn't even try is kind of a bizarre idea that runs through a lot of the dialogue around things like gender identity, race, you know, yeah. religion, all kinds of phobias, this kind of phobia and that kind of phobia. I mean, I think that's kind of running through all of them.
0: Yeah. I, I, I was talking with, a, it was actually a politician and he said, well, you know, if 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 you... You know, if you misgender somebody, you know, we can't imagine how devastating that is. And this was a well-informed person. And I said, well, slow down. We kind of can. (laughs) We've all been misgendered every so often. You know, people have mistaken our identities very often. People, you know what I mean? So people have kind of made this kind of glow around gender dysphoria. And I think it really, it is a myth that needs to be like let's all watch out. at the same time. There's something that I've noticed. It's slight. it's not quite to do with gender, but it's a real myth that's happened among teenagers. Uh, these days is that a lot of teenagers who I work with. It's like, they think that there's these golden people who live these golden lives. Mm. And, um, that, that, um, because they maybe have autism or because they have gender dysphoria or because they have whatever challenge they have they could never hope to have these golden lives and I'm like no 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 the golden people with the golden lives I've never met them they don't exist so there's this kind of this golden idea of other people and they might even say to me well you don't understand because you've no idea how mad I went in the supermarket and I'm like oh oh I could go very mad <laughs> do you know what I mean they genuine they're teenagers they're young and they genuinely think other people aren't going mad in their yeah. mind
1: yeah
0: and I think I think people do people go mad in very different ways but I think completely people really go completely. into extremes
1: it's a yeah. bit of the grass is greener argument you know yeah. like we imagine that if we didn't have this problem or if we had those opportunities or that kind of privilege that you know, we would feel so free of whatever is yeah. kind of burdening us now. And the, fa- yeah. the fact is, we don't know what it's like to be that other person with their own no different IT. kind of set of problems.
0: No.
1: Um, w- another myth that we see overblown is the, the myth of suicide. And we've devoted a full episode Huge. to this. So we would encourage listeners to revisit that. But let's just touch on that very briefly, because we do know that The rates of suicidal ideation and suicide for trans-identified young people is higher than the general population, but not necessarily higher to populations that have the same comorbidities. So these are young people oftentimes that not only have gender dysphoria, but have maybe anxiety or depression or other kinds of issues. And so their level of ruminating about suicide or even completed suicides matches those rates of the other comorbid conditions.
0: And there's so much to say about suicide. It's a massive subject, and I was really glad. I remember I hassled to do that episode. I was like, "Really, an episode on suicide?" It was so important to do it. But when you look at the actual facts, one you'd have to realise that suicidal rumination has become much bigger because we got rid of the taboo of suicide, and we got rid of it. We needed to, but it came at a cost, and it means suicide is a word that's really in the lexicon of young people so much easier than it ever was before yeah. um you, you know so th- that's su- so suicidal r- rumination suicidal ideation is much bigger i believe because we've allowed it in but at the same time when you look at the facts to do with actual gender like michael biggs did us a great favor the sociologist from oxford because he uh tracked the suicide the completed suicides in the tavistock this was a, 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 a fifteen thousand children between the years 2010 to 2020 and in that in those 10 years um out of the 15,000 children there was four completed suicides two of them were on the waiting list and two of them were getting treatment so you can't even extrapolate that the treatment Mm -hmm, gave them mm -hmm, a thing mm -hmm. and um every one of those suicides is a tragedy every one of those has devastating consequences almost indescribably bad for anybody however that's not in the realms of this is a highly high risk for, for for it's it's a risk just like it is with anybody with mental health, young people with mental health issues. It's a risk.
1: And that's furthermore, more, there's no evidence whatsoever that the affirmation or medical pathway reduces that risk. Just as you mentioned, two of the people who completed suicide were already being treated. Right. So that's very uh, important because the suicide Narrative is often used in an attempt to push parents into affirmation, but there's no evidence that affirmation is going to improve those odds for your child's risk of suicide
0: anyway. There's a huge myth around affirmation in general because affirmation pleases the young person in the moment. There's a a kind of a myth that's grown up that this will make them happy. There's a kind of, you know, two and two equals 102 with with the way affirmation kind of works. Mm -hmm. Around suicide, if you look at the actual... Um, post-medical transition. There's a five to seven years kind of where it's, it seems to go quite well. And then there's a dip and the dip is is, is, is astonishing. I know Stephen Levine did some um, great studies on that. I think there's four big studies on suicide post-medical transition and none of them are positive. And the, the very well-known would be from Dejna 2011 in Sweden. And this was following people for for from a long term like it's kind of over 40 years but sweden is a very 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 progressive society so to say it's all about transphobia isn't quite correct and it shows a dip correct. and it shows yeah. compared to the, the 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 general population um people post medical transition um have a 19.2 times more likely would die by suicide 19.2 times compared to the general population. So it's not even that affirmation doesn't reduce suicide. Medical transition doesn't reduce suicide. Well, to be fair, we don't know because we we, don't know. This
1: isn't the general population, right? So that 19 times Mm -hmm. higher than the general population is a very important statistic. But if we were just to be incredibly kind of accurate about it, we don't know if we took those individuals in kind of like a totally different time warp, and they didn't transition. We don't know if their suicide rate would have been key point five times higher than the general population, or exactly two hundred times higher, or the same. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't seem like medical transition gives individuals an equal footing with the general population let's put it that way
0: and it is not a panacea and it reminds me of that great line from samuel beckett the playwright he said you know you're on earth there's no cure for that yeah. you know the the, mm-hmm. the 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 difficulties of life follow us around and some of us find life very difficult we just find the challenges harder than others and some people just seem to find it easier they're not quite in golden golden land with the golden friends but they seem to find it easier and some of us don't find it so easy but the myth around suicide was I'd say is arguably the most destructive pernicious aspect of gender for families and young people I think it's it's a really really destructive myth
1: I think another myth from the kind of gender identity side is that parents pose a serious threat to children's well-being. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later when we talk about myths from the more, let's say, gender-critical side, right? Because we, we acknowledge that that can happen. But I've talked to thousands of families. I can't think of more than a handful of families that said, actually, if our child transitions... We're not going to have a relationship with them. The vast majority of parents, even the ones that are very concerned and want to slow things down, would never abandon their children, would never Mm. kick their children out of the house, would never tell their children, it's me or transition. Like that kind of ultimatum. I rarely, if ever, heard that. So that's a big myth that I think, you know, you work with a lot of schools and teachers. I'm sure that that causes a lot of problems.
0: Yeah. I think um, another thing uh, very connected with that is this idea that if your parents don't agree with you, this is devastatingly difficult for, for a child. And I'm like, well, for millennia, parents have disapproved of your best friend when you're a teenager, of your clothes, of the way you stand, of the way you talk. <laughs> That's what parents do. And like, you know, parents are, are in a bind because uh, as a parent, I have to say this, we we, we, we it's like, parents are when we have children we don't know if we've done a good job until they become adults and we're constantly assessing if it's working out really from you know 10 or 11 onwards we're thinking is it working out is it working out are we doing it right are we doing it right and every single thing whether the child slouches or is talking in a certain accent or is um you know, wearing crazy clothes or crazy makeup or embarrassing you or really depressed or really distressed or has gender dysphoria. We constantly think it's a reflection on us. And so many parents are thinking, "Um, I, I'm, uh, my, I'm not allowed to say my values to my child because it's going to devastate them. And I'm like, but that's what we do. That's what uh-huh. we do as parents. Uh-huh. We have our values. That's why we had our children to kind of be part of our thing which is our family tribe mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, these days, just suddenly, giving your child guidance to raise them in the way you want to raise them has become apparently a hurtful thing. I know I'm kind of going off left no, here a little bit, yeah, but it's, 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 a, it. it's a real thing. The parents mm-hmm. think they can't say, I don't agree with your friends. I don't agree with your choice of friends. I think they're problematic. Yeah. Parents are afraid to say that these days.
1: And that is what a lot of... Um, You know, the very superficial kind of affirmative clinicians say that if you don't kind of adamantly agree with your child's self-declaration, that that is harmful and traumatizing for them. Just like the people who said if if a person is misgendered, it's like completely devastating to to their well-being. So that's a very kind of in line with all of that
0: yeah i i think this idea does it's really the ball has been ran with if you don't say the name that your child wants to be named by if you don't give the pronouns that your child wants to be if you don't affirm everything you as a parent are hurting your child mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to a to a indescribable degree mm-hmm. and i'm like haven't parents done that all the time haven't they always yeah. you know my 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 father's name was pat and his mother always called him paddy and he used to like <laughs> like he was being You'd be seventy going patty like you know what I mean? And I know that's a minor thing, and I know it's a silly thing. But parents do that. Parents just they totally. they have a special yeah. place in your in yeah. your life, and it's a very special role. I know.
1: We'd like to jump in here really quick and offer up a thank you to Genspect, one of our sponsors. Genspect is an international organization that offers a healthy approach to sex and gender. Genspect recently hosted the Bigger Picture Conference in Denver, Colorado. There, they introduced the Gender Framework, a comprehensive, non-medical means of dealing with distress about gender issues. Go to genspect.org
0: to learn more. We'd also like to give a shout-out to GETA, Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. If you're looking for a therapist for yourself or your child, check out the GETA directory. And if you're a clinician who is questioning the affirmation model, and you're looking for resources and community, please consider joining Geta today. Visit genderexploratory.com to learn more.
1: At the second conference, I think I said something like, you know, for better or worse, we were all raised by our parents and it wasn't always exactly what we would have preferred. I mean, a lot of times parents say and do things that, you know, rub a child the wrong way, or like you said, is trying to instill a value that feels really you know, difficult. Now that's a, that's a far cry from parents kicking their kids out of the house. We're talking about very normal, natural kind of different ways of viewing a child's choices or preferences or behaviors that is supposed to, there's supposed to be a bit of a difference in like how a parent views a child's behavior versus how the child views the child's behavior. And that's
0: the whole contract of life that you, you get, you're born from your parents. And then when you reach adulthood, you can reject what you wish. And have your own life. That's yeah, that's yeah, the contract of yeah. life. But there is the other side. There's two kind of myths around parents. One is that the parents are are torturing the children with 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 you know biological pronouns or the, their love name, their birth name, you know. And then on the other side of the fence, it's this idea of the trans cult got my kids.
1: Yeah, which we'll we'll talk about yeah, that. I want to okay. get through a few more of okay, these myths, okay, and good. then we're gonna shift over. <laughs> Slow down, okay. Stella. Slow down, (laughs) Stella. Okay, so one of the other ones I wanted to just talk about, which I've been hearing more recently, is this idea of the gender journey. Oh, yeah. Now, that term has been used for some years now, but what's happening, I think, is that people who really buy into the concept of gender identity believe that even if you take, let's say, a weird turn, air quotes, on your gender journey, air quotes, That it was just part of the process and it's perfectly fine. And there's no issue with that. And so in that way, it really minimizes the trauma and damage that some detransitioners really feel they've been through. So I think this is a really weird myth that is an attempt to kind of like spin a traumatic situation where a person felt misled or like they were part of a scandal and turn it into some kind of benign positive journey and you know if you can't see the beauty in your own journey it's because you aren't looking at it properly or something.
0: I know it's this compulsive positivity that no matter what we talk about we're going to put a positive spin on it and it's very very oppressive and I did notice the Status of Care 8 path. they did you know they kind of I would argue, undermine the detransition experience by talking about it. A detransition was basically another identity. You you know what I mean? And that is not what's actually going down when somebody detransitions. So I think it's really important that um, we kind of call it out. And I do think there's a major push. So many people are like, yeah, some people detransition, but then they might retransition. It's all part of the kind of identity journey, and we should be really quite cool about it rather than realizing that no, people are going through harrowing experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. where I really do think this is utterly devastating mm-hmm. when you've actually physically um, done some interventions that you regret. Like, I I don't think that should be undermined on any level. I think it's a really yeah. important point.
1: Yeah. There's also um, the idea that ROGD is a moral panic.
0: Yeah. I was just thinking that too. That's exactly where I was landed. This idea of the moral panic is really, really strong. So many people, even people I know to this day, that they know how much I work in it. They know how unpanicky I am by nature. That they think, yeah, this isn't, this isn't real. This this is all overblown. This is kind of a Twitter craze. You know what I mean? It's not really happening the way everybody says it. And then they discover some story and they go, Surely that's not happening. And you're like, yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah.
1: In in our recent Annapolis retreat, I remember one parent said something like, you know, because I asked, like, what are you getting out of this time so far? It was like on day two or something. And she said something like, I realized that I am not a crazy conspiracy theorist. Mm -hmm. The things I experienced in the doctor's office with my daughter, they really happened. And I'm not crazy to have felt that way. So I think this, wow. this idea that people are morally panicking and blowing something out of proportion or exaggerating is thrown around so much that a lot of parents kind of can't trust what they've actually seen with their own eyes and what they're actually experiencing with their own family. And that's so it's so soul-crushing to basically be told that you're making it up or you're mm. just exaggerating something that you feel in your gut like something is not healthy here.
0: It's very interesting. It's very there there dear. It's it's very kind of yes. calm down dear, you know. And the thing about them, when somebody kind of makes noises, they won't say that this is a moral panic calm down but they're making noises. It's incredibly difficult to refute. It's very silencing. It's generally, it's a raised eyebrow or it's a smile or it's a slightly dismissive point. It's very hard to come at it and argue it because it won't be given in a straight way. And that's what makes it so frustrating because you're just going, and you haven't actually been able to clearly defend what's actually going on. So it's it's a particularly, it's a nasty side yeah. Of the of the many myths that are out there, and the
1: the last myth from this side I want to touch on is just the myth of this far right extremist oh. trans hate. I know this is so interesting because when when people who don't know much about this world will bring something up, maybe not not knowing what I, what field I work in, they think that they think that trying to restrict, let's say, gender medical interventions for under 18s is coming from hate. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be such a bizarre misunderstanding of the situation. Now, I I may not agree with bans in terms of legislators telling doctors what to do, but I can't think of any circumstance where I think it's appropriate to medicalize an under 18. So I think Uh from that side, you know, it makes perfect sense. But none of this is necessarily coming from a place of hate like that's a very strange spin on a very important medically ethical question like a medical ethics question
0: and you know the way it's 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 there's so many parts of gender that it's kind of how did that happen but for me almost the biggest one is how did something that is ran by you know big pharma that are going to make phenomenal levels of money how did that get termed the left-wing side and how did the not the right-wing side be the kind of hey don't medicalize i know (laughs) know. it's unbelievable that that happened how did that become a far-right issue that apparently saying that you should be cautious with your children and you shouldn't spend huge money on pharmacological medicine Mm-hmm. on their identities, mm-hmm. um, that is apparently a far-right stance. I, I'll never fail to shake my head and think, how did that one get across the line? But it,
1: I know. We talked about did. that, I think, with Wilfred oh, Riley, It was interesting.
0: There's another part of that far-right trans mm. thing... In Ireland, it's kind of interesting, and we've been very Americanized. Ireland and England and Europe have been very Americanized. And I think social media has really played a part. And we are already were quite Americanized, but it was—it's been coming and coming. And so this idea that there's effectively the equivalent of Antifa roaming the streets of of, of Offaly, where I live. And like, no, like in Ireland, like the right, the far right, as I always say, that's your ma, that's that's your mother, who's mm. <laughs> kind of a conservative type. Do you know well, what I mean? Antifa's the far left, but you oh, mean sorry. like
1: a kind of like Nazi, <laughs> like neo-Nazi
0: group. Yeah, stuff. Mm. yeah, the, the extremists, I might be completely wrong, so you can put me right here. I get the impression that there are extremists in America that just aren't in places like Ireland maybe it's the odd person living in the woods but generally when somebody says far right there's a few holy people who who are quite religious but like far right is an extreme Mm, descriptor mm -hmm, of those people mm -hmm. conservative would be the word they're conservative like your mother yeah you know what I mean? And they have a few values and that's all that's going on. There's nothing far right. Now, maybe there is, and maybe I just haven't met them. I'm sure there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. So forget about that. Of course, there's exceptions. But in general, I don't believe that there's any sort of extreme problem with uh, extreme far right in, in Ireland. And I feel that that's come over maybe from America. Now, you can correct me, am I wrong about that or i don't know is there extreme? well
1: i don't don't know what's happening in ireland but i do think that there are pretty extreme groups kind of bubbling up on both sides like the antifa is a pretty extreme left-wing group that does not represent most people who put pronouns in their bio or something they're not antifas they're just (laughs) going along because they think it's the nice thing to do and they really believe in you know, respecting people's identities and rights. And then on the other side, there is an extreme kind of right wing underground movement that I think is coming up in a kind of a, a populist way. And also in a way that people who feel marginalized and disenfranchised by, you know, our government or whatever are kind of bubbling up. And there may be adjacent to some of the extreme aspects of men's rights movements and like some of these things. So I do think there are extreme movements on both sides, which have a specifically American cultural flavor. And it is interesting the way these online conversations can export an American version of like, a political movement or an identity movement to other countries where maybe it doesn't even apply the same way anymore. Like what religion means in Ireland is so different from what religion means in America with like our Southern Baptist roots. And like, it's just very different compared to the kind of Irish Catholic thing. So it's funny to see how these movements get kind of transported to other places.
0: Yeah, you can really see, we, we have, you can see it among the, you know, the teenagers. They have this American drawl and you can just see by their sensibilities. Really? Oh, they talk about Biden and they talk about American politics and they wouldn't know their own president. <laughs> Very. <laughs> That's so interesting. I know, yeah. it's so extraordinary. They talk about racism as if we had... Some sort of history of of slavery, and it's like, no, 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 we were, we were the indigenous. Yeah. <laughs> That's who we were, and not only that, we are racist. We're racist to um, Irish travelers, but mm. we, we we don't we don't have any history of of slavery. You know, you know what I mean. We don't have the equivalent of American yeah. culture. Yeah. We just A don't have it. Context. It's, it's, yeah. Well, it, it didn't happen in Ireland. We didn't do. We didn't. I, I we were
1: colonized. That, I heard that in Ireland the the irish were actually kind of treated as though they were like the the black people of the region yeah, and yeah, that there yeah. were weird issues around race that are different but like adjacent i don't know if i'm getting my history right. yeah yeah there's, a you famous, there's a, yeah
0: there's a famous quote from uh <laughs> the commitments which is a famous irish film it's a funny irish film and he said the guy in it said you know the irish were the blacks of europe and then he said and the dubliners were the blacks of ireland and then he said and the north side were the blacks of the Dubliners," and he kept it going into mm-hmm. minority 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 and his point was really that we were seen, um, and we were for many years, you know what I mean, by the English in particular, as um, lesser. You know what I mean. So there's famous kind of signs and windows where they'd say no, no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, and stuff like that. And that's wow. very famous. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if you look at the history of the world, you'll just see colonists. You know, colon- You know, people colonized all all the other countries. That, you know that lovely quote we we are born of risen apes not fallen angels and that mm. the apes were armed killers besides so what should we wonder at you know should we wonder at the poetry or the music or should we wonder at the wars like what we've mm. come from we are we are a people all of us you me and every one of us we've come from bloodshed and war and cavemen <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean we literally yeah. come from the risen apes so like i i just think history is bloody and to, to, for yeah. people to presume that one, one piece of history is, ah, oh, but anyway, we can go off on one. When we go back to our, our <laughs> myths. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, no, you're right, you're right.
0: We hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as we are.
1: We just wanted to take a quick moment and say thank you to all of our listeners. Your support is the fuel that keeps this train running.
0: So please be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast platforms.
1: And do be sure to check out the conversations that are happening on YouTube in the comments section. We think that we have some of the smartest, most engaged viewers out there, and we really appreciate all of the interactions.
0: Also, we produce additional bonus content every week for our listener community on Patreon. Go to widerlenspod.com and click on join our listener community. Your financial support means a lot to us.
1: And for those of you who are in need of parenting support and resources, we each have parent coaching membership groups. So please do check those out. You can find links to both of them at widerlenspod.com or in the show notes.
0: And of course, you can always buy our book, When Kids Say They're Trans, out now in the UK and the US. Thank you so much. Now back to the show.
1: So now we're going to shift over and talk about myths from the gender exploratory side, the gender critical side. I mean, to be fair, you know, we have we've been in this world now for so long. There is not really two sides anymore. There's like lots and lots and lots wow. of different sides. Yeah. So I think it's weird calling it a side. But at least in terms of media reporting, there still seems to be in the mainstream newspapers kind of two angles. So we're, we're yeah. talking about those. Those myths that now come from maybe more of the gender critical side. So Mm. one of them, and especially this is true on Twitter, and I'm guessing Instagram, wherever there's a visual medium that is kind of hilarious and so silly is the you can always tell Oh my God. These people... Believe that no matter what, if a person is trans or has transitioned, that you can always tell their biological sex. Mm -hmm. So they will share pictures of a trans person who, you know, the, the typical is like a trans person posts a picture of themselves to show you know, how cute they are that day. And then the this type of gender critical feminist will repost and say, you're obviously a man you can always tell or vice versa if it's like a female to male person. This crowd is quite hilarious and I don't even know what to make of them.
0: Well, I, I yes, I agree with you. And um, I think this crowd do not know the impact of testosterone. And testosterone is a very, very, serious hormone and when you see it uh how it impacts a a, a face a body a shape the shoulders the jaw the the skin it's unbelievable what testosterone and you cannot always tell You, you you just can't but i do think there's one section of people who are pretty devastated by this yes myth yes to me, they would be the, the de-trans women. These are women who have oh, taken testosterone. Yeah. They have been masculinized. Their faces are, are very male or their bodies are very male. And um, quick draw McGraws on, on Twitter are saying, yeah, I can tell you're a man. You're always a man. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a biological woman and I'm de-trans. Oh. And you you have really distressed me. You, you've you hurt me with this. And it's horrible. And they they don't even know they've done it. Because they think they're talking to a trans woman who's a male. But do you understand me? They think they're yeah, talking totally, to a woman. Totally, yeah, saying. But what, what saying. they're actually talking to is a woman who who masculinized and is now reverting back. And you cannot always tell. It's not true. And people get it wrong. I remember Michelle Oliva, who I've met many times and she's beautiful. And she's a trans woman. She's done a brilliant kind of series of people saying to her mm. that she's a man. And saying you can always tell, you can always yeah. tell, you can always tell, and she yeah. whacked it up on Twitter again and again and again, and it was so powerful. They were bullying yeah. her, and they didn't even yeah. know they were bullying her because they were they were just saying we can always tell you're a man, and she wasn't a man. She's a, she's it's a G really woman. sick.
1: Well, there's yeah. a couple things that come to my mind. First of all. Um, I hadn't even realized that this crowd was even a thing until I saw a like a detransitioner um, protest and they were protesting a gender clinic or something. And then in the comments, there were all these people saying, that's not really a woman, that's a man, because she had a lowered voice from testosterone. And, and I was like, do they not even understand they're attacking people ostensibly on the same side of the argument, first of all. Second of all, I think even if... Even if they were indeed talking to a trans person, why bring the cruelty in? I mean, you can disagree with a person's sense of what does it mean to be a woman or a man, you can argue with them on philosophical points, but I just don't understand why somebody would spend their time going after somebody who's let's say trying to pass and just saying you don't pass you still look like a whatever i mean just why why i don't even well it's, cer- it's certainly
0: it's not gender critical because it's 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 very based on stereotypes and it's based on looks and it's it's fundamentally not yes. a, if we're going to be purist about what a gender critical viewpoint is that's not gender that's critical. not it. it's no. very
1: much just like it's almost like women attacking each other based on their appearance on on the internet like you yeah. you did your makeup terribly or something i Look mean it's that petty and but yeah. i also want to say part of the reason that i think this is just getting worse and worse is because there are kind of trans rights activists who try to say that they are biologically women so for example the cyclist uh that used to go by veronica ivy oh, yeah. now i think is called McKinnon, rachel whatever, mckinnon yeah.
0: no the other way around but yeah yeah these,
1: okay is saying yeah. these interesting things like I'm a biological woman. And when prompted about why do, why do you think that, Rachel's, and Rachel's a biological male, by the way, but Rachel basically uses this weird argument to say, well, you know, biological means made of biological substances <laughs> like cells and tissues and blood and nerves and veins. And I have those things. And I'm a woman because I have a female gender identity. Therefore, I'm a biological woman. Which is such a twisted and demented argument but when you have people like that trying to claim that they're biologically women it you know it gives shrift to the you can always tell crowd to go into the comments and say no rachel we can always tell you're a male like you're a biological man so so the whole thing is just made worse by the craziest activists on on both sides, but like mm. I, I think, gender at, the gender ideology activists really have to kind of take some of the blame here. It's not just gender critical feminists' fault. It's because there are people basically denying biological reality. So it's just mm. really hard. And I I definitely have a lot of empathy for trans people and detransitioners who are caught in the crossfires of this. You can always tell movement. It's so nuts.
0: Can I just say that I've worked with quite a few detransitioners, and they have found when they are, you know, I've I've met quite a few detrans women, and the world thinks they're trans women. Yeah, understand me. So they're detrans women, but they're they're perceived as a trans woman because they seem male, and they're you know presenting as female. And so we're going to have to, and we, we address this in the gender care framework and, and for Genspec, but like, we're going to have to navigate that yeah. fact, you know what yeah. I mean? That people are now going to look quite androgynous and ambiguous. And up until about ten, 10 years ago, you know, our biological sex was effectively public property because you could see it visibly. You could see whether somebody uh, was female or male. Now because of technology, um, and medical technology transition has improved to the point that you we can't actually presume on that knowledge anymore that that actual day has gone and that has that has brought in all sorts of unintended consequences and unthought about consequences that we try to like I say the gender care framework is an ambitious long long uh, uh um endeavor but it's 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 beginning with the concept of yeah we're going to have to start uh, handling the fact that gender diverse people are in society and society needs to uh, recognize that and it doesn't have to be medicalized. Anyway, yeah, let's so go on.
1: We have very <laughs> very many points and very little time. But let's sorry, try sorry. To go, let's go. No, it's okay. Let, let's try to go through a couple more. Um, yeah. Another one is that that we alluded to this earlier that the trans cult got my kid. Oh yeah. And as always, there is a nugget of truth here. I mean, I, anyone who follows us knows I talk a lot about influence and I talk a lot about, you know, thought control and how certain ideas can capture a young person and the power of, you know, being kind of indoctrinated online. Like there, there is a nugget of truth to that. Huge. Yeah. But the part about it that I think is exaggerated is that there's absolutely zero to do with um, family dynamic, that there's zero that a parent can do to support their child in a healthy way, and that everything is the enemy with a nefarious purpose rather than maybe there are well-meaning people going along with this who aren't actually trying to, quote, brainwash your child. They may really think they're doing the right thing by talking to your child about their, quote, gender identity or whatever. So that's the part of it that I think is exaggerated a bit. And
0: it it kind of reminds me of... Remember when I was talking about the internal locus of control and the external locus of control? This idea that it's either trans got my kid, it's within them. And I I was just reading a study. I've become an expert because I've been reading so much recently. But I was reading a study and it's so interesting because it's exactly what I've seen reflected in Genspect and the GDSN and stuff, which is mothers are more involved either direction with trans so they're either more involved with with the affirm affirmative and they're kind of beating down the door for pronouns and names or they're more involved in the critical gender critical way and they're beating down the doors to see um you know if they can uh, move the child beyond it and fathers tend to be just less involved in the gender issue and i i think that's very very interesting but this whole idea of the the trans cult got my kid and there's nothing i could do with it I think it's making you it's rendering you powerless and there's plenty there's plenty a parent can do and it's it's almost comforting to think there's nothing I can do about it because you're just so overwhelmed to hear that there's nothing I can do about it is almost relieving and it's it's exhausting to think there is things you can do me and you Sasha we wrote a book saying there are things (laughs) you can do about it (laughs) yeah but our point was you can do things about it Here's a million different things you could do about it. And they're all tiring, but they're probably worth it. Yeah. You know?
1: Another myth that I think is really important is kind of like a two part myth. Number one, that if a child doesn't have a childhood history of gender dysphoria, um, then they're ROGD. But if they do have a childhood history, then then they may be a real trans kid. Now, not all gender-critical people believe this, but I hear this a lot, especially in Ugh. kind of mainstream circles. And I guess the second part of that is that, you know, older teens or young adults don't need protection from making irreversible changes. So I think, you know, it's this idea that, like, well, if you have a long history of it and you're young, you need protection or Yeah, if you don't have a long history and you're young, but if you have a long history or you're older, then you can totally make any decision you want. And there's no no reason to be concerned about it.
0: I'm really glad you raised this. Obviously, with my history as a kid, I'm particularly protective over those little kids. And I feel there is a there's a kind of there's going to be a few splits. Anybody who knows anything about politics and history are aware that, you know, this movement is going to go different directions. You know, of course it will. And there's going to be and I can see it coming quite soon where there's going to be one camp who will say, yeah, yeah, trans those little kids that have been gender dysphoric since their childhood. I've seen it at a few conferences recently. I've noticed that there's no doubt about it. They're saying, yeah, if you want to trans kids, trans those ones. And I'm like, no, no, they're the ones with the kind of 61 to 98% desistance rate, according to every te- every study ever carried out leave those particular kids alone they're the ones that don't seem to have a high rate of comorbidities you know what I mean so so there's a kind of split between the ROGD camp and the and the childhood onset camp and it feels to me that the the little kids could end up because they are impacted by ROGD because they grow up they're, they're like me as a kid and they grow up in this gender environment and then they discover the internet at 10 and they take on all the kind of sensibilities of the oral gd kid having had childhood gender onset gender dysphoria so i think um that that myth about l- l- let them off let those kids trans is frightening and it's going to be i think a huge issue over the next five years
1: Yeah. And, you know, we've met so many detransitioners who started their transition as adults and they had serious mental health complications. They were not really given a chance to explore all the things their gender dysphoria could mean. And they also deserve to be cared for and given the highest quality psychological care rather than just being... Uh, kind of treat it as though this is like a cosmetic procedure that if you want it, go ahead and get it.
0: And I, I think there's some, some um, uh, detransition have spoken so well about that. Michelle Oliva, again, she she yeah. gave a brilliant presentation for GenSpec showing she was an adult and this is why I shouldn't have transitioned and I shouldn't have been allowed to transition yeah. because of all these reasons. She was so clear in her mind about what had happened. Richie is another one that we've uh, interviewed and he was very clear about why he shouldn't have transitioned as a, as an adult. So this idea that this is all about the kids and let them adults at it. Like mm-hmm, you say, mm-hmm, let the mm-hmm. young kids and I'm like, leave those kids alone and then know. the adults and it's like what about protecting vulnerable adults vulnerable yeah. adults are, are just yeah. as vulnerable as anybody else yeah so that they're two huge issues another one is that
1: kids are always the ones estranging oh this yeah this is another i mean it is a smaller myth than the myth of parents always being a danger to their child mm. but there are cases where a family creates an ultimatum like if you do this if you transition we don't want to have any part of your life I have Mm -hmm. heard a few cases where parents say that and there are lots of cases I'm sure that I don't know about where parents really do um kind of kick the child out I know that that does happen
0: yeah but there's there's two myths like we've kind of touched on both but on one side it's like um Parents abandon their children, they throw them out, and the mm-hmm. other side the children abandon the parents and It's mm-hmm. more nuanced both mm-hmm. sides mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and in fairness like for for so many you know thousands of years, children have grown up and they have kind of moved away as as i saw I heard Lisa Marchciaa say it in Annapolis at the retreat, part of the deal of having kids is losing your kids, you know what I mean they lose they they leave you, you mm-hmm. know what I mean. And I think back in the day, people had many kids. So you lost a few of your kids. They went. But these days, you're only having one or two kids. And the child leaving and leaving you behind and effectively rejecting your values, it seems to be a constant. If you look at literature, if you look at history, it was always there. But these days, I think it's more devastating because it's such a kind of atomized life that our family, our small little tiny family is Everything. And I think it's hurting people more, I think.
1: Yeah, and I I just want to point out that this is a function of an individualistic culture, too. I mean, people who come from different cultures where there's much more a sense of community and family honor and responsibility to your parents. You don't see that, but that comes at the cost of individuality. And so, I mean, I come from kind of like you do a world with both cultures. My family's not very traditional in terms of the way some Egyptian families are, but what I see is that, you know, you get this cohesion and you get this family closeness and you get this multi-generational sticking together But also, you Mm -hmm. don't have the freedom to really explore with things that are outside the bounds of your Mm -hmm. family value systems. So Mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, if we live in, in the West and we value this kind of individuality, part of the parents' bargain is you don't know that your children will stick around with you forever.
0: Yeah. And that has really undergone change in the last hundred years, like the concept of filial obedience and filial duty and the idea that you will be definitely around to look after your parents in old age. That's not that's under scrutiny. That's not a given the way it used to be. So yeah. I we've kind of yeah. left behind our myths. Is there any other okay. myths we have to go back to?
1: Um, let's
0: see. Well, oh. the, the myth of, of um
1: sexuality. So the myth that all the kids being transitioned are all would be gay and lesbian and bisexual kids.
0: I it's I, I do a lot of webinars and stuff and I don't think I've ever done a webinar where somebody hasn't said, and they're all gay <laughs> and I'm like and I want mm-hmm. to stop the webinar and say no, no. <laughs> Let's talk yeah. about that for a moment. Yeah. I don't know. There is definitely always a contingent. There's no doubt right. about it. Lesbians, right. but you know, gay. There's no doubt, and they're a contingent. That's all they are, though. It's a con- there's no doubt. You couldn't say that they're all gay. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'd yeah. say they're more more autism than gay. Would yeah. if I had to? If I had to say which was more.
1: And along similar lines, I think if a kid starts to experiment with gender in their adolescence. A myth is that they're an ROGD kid. Oh. I, I think sometimes would-be gay and lesbian kids will only start experimenting with their gender in adolescence. They're not always gender non-conforming from age two, three, or four. Sometimes young people, as their sexuality is consolidated, that's when they start experimenting with like gender roles and aesthetic and stuff. So I don't think yeah. all gender questioning adolescents are necessarily like the ROGD typical kid. I think some, some young people, I mean, anybody we know who's an adult gay person, they might have a story about, you know, when I started having crushes and I started realizing my sexuality, that's when I started to kind of experiment with this or that aesthetic. So, Uh,
0: And uh, just to add about the gay thing, because obviously there's a, this is definitely cutting a very hard, you know, blade through an awful lot of uh, gay and lesbian bisexual people. There's no doubt about that. But I do think as well, we tend to miss, it looks like Katie Herzog and Carol, the D transitioner so many people have said there is, seems to be a very high number of uh, lesbians transitioning who are adults. And they're, you know, they're, they're not ROGD.
1: Yeah, we we have to remember that as well, which goes back to the question of adults deserving a thorough process and care and not just being treated as though it is just a free for all. I guess the last myth I think that I'm thinking about from the GC side is that anybody who experiences autogynephilia is necessarily a narcissist who's trying to trample on women's rights. Now, there are clearly narcissists who are trying to trample on women's rights. I don't want in any way to minimize how destructive that is for women, but not all autogynephiles have that personality profile at all. Many of them Mm are going to fly completely under the radar and you're not going to see a video of them on twitter screaming at the waiter for misgendering them like that's not that profile so i i just want to kind of decouple the autogynephilic romantic or sexual experience from narcissism and that kind of aggressive behavior
0: yeah And further, it reminds me of, uh, you know, people who don't understand much about alcoholism think all alcoholics are violent. And it's like, Mm. no, no, they're not. No, they're not. There's some Mm -hmm. sad, quiet alcoholics who sit in the armchair and just get drunk quietly. Yes, there is definitely a connection with violence and alcoholism. There's no doubt about it. So I'd say it's very similar to autogynephilia. There's definitely a connection. I don't know the stats, don't know the research, but you can, you can see there's a, there's connection with autogynephilia and and narcissism and also, you know, inappropriate behavior, sexual behavior. And there is also the quiet AGP that we're not hearing about because they wouldn't be on Twitter yelling their head off. Yeah. You you know, you're not going to see them. That's right. That's a big one. Do you know what's one thing to give people hope before we finish? None of well, not none of us. Many of us, certainly me included, I've never thought so deeply about what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be human. You know, is there a ghost in the machine? Some sort of essence within yeah. me, and I, I do think in the long run we're we're going to come out a more thoughtful eventually. Eventually, Pollyanna here, but there's going to be there's, there's so many deep thinkers really pushing their brains around this that. I think there will be some, maybe ten, maybe twenty years from now, there'll be some very interesting theories.
1: I hope so. It's it's all very interesting stuff. I I spoke with somebody yesterday who was saying, with his child going through this, it totally gave him the opportunity to question what he believed it meant to be a man, like, and what does well, it mean to be a woman, like, you know, for some people, the the kind of Arguments that feminists have been trying to make for a long time didn't really land until this gender revolution. So there's always something interesting to learn, even if we have serious issues with some aspects. So,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, well, we covered the myths for today. That was (laughs) interesting and (laughs) And fun to uh talk about.
0: And I've no doubt we've missed some, so make sure you put it in yes. the comments. Make sure you tell us, tell us, hit us over the head with the bits that we've missed. <laughs> We're very interested. And you know, we, we've got our... our, our you know parent content group and we're always interested in and people adding to the conversation because we don't intend to make exhaustive kind of conversations we're trying to yeah add to it you know yeah
1: so whether it's in the youtube comments or within our listener community on patreon please let us know what we missed and some other interesting myths that you can think of yeah all right until next time bye bye thanks for joining us this week on gender a wider lens Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review.
0: For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media.
1: Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.